You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Sailing on a boat in the ancient world was basically akin to walking a tightrope over a tiger pit. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so looking forward to our episode today. This season, we've been looking into ancient mysteries, and one of those mysteries that has been a subject of much intense debate between us is sea monsters. Fantastical sea monsters appear in both history and mythology in the ancient world, and we want to know, we must know, we have to know what lived in the seas in ancient times. What did the stories of ancient world sea monsters mean? What was Pliny on about? Can somebody explain this to me? Pliny the Elder tells us of fantastical creatures. Phlegon of Trailies, that dubious source, has some equally fantastic tales. What were the ancients seeing? Join us as we dive into the mysteries of the ancient seas and separate the fact, the folklore, and the fiction. We are so, so thrilled to welcome Ryan Denson to the podcast. Ryan is a PhD candidate at the University of Exeter. His work specializes in the research and study of sea monsters in Greco-Roman antiquity, and we couldn't possibly have a series on ancient mysteries and not take this chance to have an expert on to discuss sea monsters. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We're so thrilled to have you. So first off, Ryan, can you tell us about yourself and what drew you into researching sea monsters? Yes. So I am a third year PhD candidate, hopefully submitting at the end of October. 
So maybe by this time next year, I'll be Dr. Ryan Denson. Um, and I mean, my interest in it basically came out of a, a, a general interest in folklore and the ancient imagination, sort of the ideas of the supernatural as well. Anything that's sort of like weird and fantastical and interesting is what I do for research, basically. So I have like other forthcoming articles on demons and there's one on Poseidon's underwater kingdom as well that'll hopefully be out this year. But yeah, I mean, just anything supernatural or interesting like that, I'm actually hopefully submitting an article on sea monsters in Beowulf at the end of next week, hopefully. That'll be out in like a, a year's time or so. But my actual thesis project looks at sea monsters and also sea people in Greco-Roman antiquity, basically. So kind of combining the two things there a little bit that, uh, you know, you have sea monsters, but you also have very anthropomorphic ideas of imagined creatures. So like the Tritons and the Nyrids, Tritons themselves are interesting. They're basically half sea monster, essentially. But the actual full sea monsters, I mean, the main one that we'll probably talk about is the Ketos. The usual way I introduce this to everybody, um, if you've ever seen Clash of the Titans, of course, that is the main sea monster of that story. I was about to say sad to say it's not called a, a Kraken, but uh, I'm not, not sad about that. It's actually just called Akitas in Greco-Roman um, stuff. The movie just horribly inserts Kraken for whatever reason. So it's become a sort of lost sea monster. You can ask, you know, walk down the street and ask someone, a non-classicist or someone that just doesn't know the ancient world. You know, people generally know the myths of the Minotaur, the Centaurs, all of that sort of thing. But when it comes to sea monsters, they're really kind of just been obscured. They become genericized into, they don't have a proper name like the Minotaur. And so people haven't really done much scholarship on it. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to do with my thesis here. That is fascinating. The monster that you mentioned, the Ketos, can you describe that for us? How is it depicted? So the Ketos, as I like to think of it, it's basically a blend of Piscine and draconic features, essentially, and with a little bit of canine elements as well, occasionally. So, I mean, Piscine elements, you know, fish-like features is no real surprise for a sea monster. You know, we see a lot of the ancient depictions, they have fish-like bodies, they have gills, they have fins, things like that. But also, perhaps more surprisingly, is the draconic or serpentine features of them. Um, and this comes through basically associations with ancient ideas of dragons. And uh, to go ahead and advertise some of uh, my supervisor, Daniel Ogden's work, he has a book out that was published just last year called The Dragon in the West that basically theorizes a lot of the ideas about the Ketus, um, basically helped form the modern and medieval notions of the dragon. Because with the Ketus from about 4th century BC onward, this sort of fish-like generic body uh, starts to take on more what is best probably described as a Loch Ness type monster body. It gets this very stout body and it has four legs a lot of times or sometimes four flippers with this elongated neck. Again, just think of the archetypal image of the Loch Ness monster essentially. So you get this sort of fish-like monster that's also taking on very different associations like that seemingly of just generic beasts. There, are, We can get into that a bit later. There's all sorts of theories about why this happens. But basically, the two main components are those Piscine and Draconic elements to the creature. 
And then perhaps the more startling mystery is why in the world a monster that is associated with the marine element takes on canine elements. And this, I'm actually, I'm speaking at, um, there's a 2022 Monsters Conference in September, and I'm speaking on the canine associations of sea monsters. Why this occurs, honestly, is a bit of a mystery because you see it from some of the earliest uh, depictions in ancient art that they have very recognizably like floppy canine dog-like ears a lot of times. And that's very bizarre because you look at a lot of the creatures in the sea. I mean, fish don't have ears in the same sense that, you know, terrestrial animals do as things that protrude out of their head like that. So that sort of comes in as another element seemingly of just generic monster associations. If you're going to depict a monster, you know, throw in some general beast-like characteristics of a dog or something like that. And we also see, I mean, a lot of times in ancient art depictions, they'll be depicted with this very elongated snout that's definitely not like a fish, but it seems more reminiscent of a dog a lot of times. So they have that odd canine element to them that gets another element of mystery to them. It's such a strange description. We were doing some some research into a book that we wrote that's coming out in February called Women of Myth. And some of what we were looking at, some of the monsters we were looking at kind of there was this cryptozoological element to it where there were, you know, people claiming they had sighted things, you know, animals in the sea or in rivers that had these long necks and these strange elongated sort of snout heads that could be described as a dog skull or a horse skull or something like that. This is like a terrestrial mammal head on what is an aquatic sort of snake-like, possibly aquatic fish-like body. It seems to continue even down to today that people claim to see these things or maybe people see an animal in in the ocean or in in a river that they don't understand and their their brain kind of mushes together different um, resemblances to animals that they've seen before to try to make it make sense. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a thing that goes way back in the ancient world too that i mean we we have things today i notice a lot of names for like sea lion why do we call that a sea lion it uh, it doesn't resemble a lion at all but we still just kind of give it the same name and it's the same thing oddly with the dog stuff because you'll see as early as homer there are references to just dogs in the sea and the way it works in the ancient world is that you don't really specify the difference between in Greek, it's a kion. Ancient texts don't necessarily need to specify, you know, a sea kion from a terrestrial kion. It's just implicitly assumed a lot of times. Whereas, I mean, with that example here, we have to say the difference between sea lion or lion. If you just say lion, obviously, there's only one answer for that. So it gets confused real easily, it seems. Uh, the canine associations seem to come into sea beasts through this ancient nomenclature of just naming different marine animals after terrestrial animals like that. Interesting. So it might just be a situation where it's like it's like a seahorse, like there's a slight resemblance. So people name an animal after or call it after something they've seen on land. I'm sorry, seahorses and real horses look nothing alike. I have never understood that. I get I get it with like the arching neck and like the snout, you know, I, I can see the resemblance. Yeah, that, that's actually another thing um, I'm right. They're not monsters, but the hippocamps in both ancient Greek and Latin. If you look through ancient art, a lot of times the bodies for the hippocamps in the Kite will be basically identical. The only difference is, you know, one has a horse's head, one has a more monstrous head. But in both Greek and Latin, the word hippocampus 
is also seemingly the exact same word for seahorse. So they have basically the the same word to refer to the little actual real animal and the fantastical creature that a lot of times you'll see in especially Roman art pulls the chariot of Neptune. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So let's talk about the ancient world and its relationship to the sea. In modern times, traveling by sea is dangerous, and we have technology that can tell us when storms are coming, help right ships, warn of rocks and shallows, etc., But ancient people had none of that. What was it like for ancient people traveling the seas? Was there a fear of what lurked beneath the waves or even a fear of the sea itself? Did the ancients think of the sea as a sentient being capable of devouring them? (laughs) Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, first, I mean, to talk about the ancient sea travel. Yeah, it was fraught with danger. There was uh, one scholar that I think put it quite nicely that, you know, sailing on a boat in the ancient world was basically akin to walking a tightrope over a tiger pit because you have to think about the way that they 
conceived of the sea is very different from the way that we thought of it. We're influenced, obviously, today by watching all sorts of nature documentaries, and we can see inside the sea relatively easily through high-def cameras and all of that sort of thing. But in the ancient world, of course, there's no such thing. The furthest down you can get into the sea in the ancient world, obviously there's no scuba diving equipment or anything like that, is only as far as you can swim down, which I, I don't know, may is, as long as you can hold your breath, maybe like 30 feet or so. The rest of that's just completely untouchable. Aside from along the shorelines, it's just a vast sea of the unknown. Essentially, there's nothing nothing you can know about it, really. So that's one element of fear of your sailing on top of the sea. The ancient experience of the sea is almost always a matter of being on top of it than rather being in it. And you just don't know what's down there. That's, you know, just leads to a lot of fears. And then just in general, seafaring, getting caught up in a storm in the ancient world is no joke at sea. You know, you can go on YouTube and look at modern ships getting stuck in storms. And for the most part, I think I think they managed to survive it. But you, you can imagine how terrifying and how dangerous it would be um, to be on an ancient ship in a storm. And that may well be the end for you. Or even just a rogue wave, like particularly in the Mediterranean is really seismic, right? Yeah, exactly. And especially when the Romans start getting out towards Britain, um, you have the waters of the Atlantic are a lot more choppy and a lot more dangerous. So they begin to associate. I have a whole section in my thesis that's just on Atlantic sea monsters because those waters were known to be much more dangerous and much more frightening like that. I believe it's somewhere... I can't remember which Greek poem it was, but that speaks of the sea as essentially a devouring entity a lot of times. And that's that's very interesting for my purposes because, I mean, sea monsters are known the way they attack people for devouring them and eating them. So you get that nice sort of illusion that a lot of times sea and sea monster are really kind of the same danger. And we, of course, have all the personifications um, inherent in the Greek marine deities as well. So... In a way, that's an offshoot of that, of it may not be the sea itself that's out to get you, but Poseidon, as Odysseus famously found out most of all. So we have that a lot of times to explain the sort of motions of the sea. The storm that he gets caught up in book five of the Odyssey is blamed on, of course, Poseidon spotting him. And that stirs up what must have been this, you know, if you can imagine, not even a ship. He was on a raft, but being caught up in that in a storm especially is got to be the worst nightmare for sailors. And I often think of, you know, because the Odyssey was famously just well known throughout the ancient world, what it must have been like to be a sailor in the ancient world. And one of the central poems of your culture is about a man that got lost at sea for 10 years. Yeah. And I bet that happened to people. I mean, being being blown off course and the challenges of navigating, especially if you're um, at sea and you couldn't see the land. And th that's another question I have. Like a lot of the time, sea travel was not the situation where you can't see the land. Like people stayed fairly close to the coastline from what I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, as I understand it, too. Yeah. I mean, if it were possible um, just hug the coast basically as much as you can if you're making a short trip. Um, yeah, because, I mean, if, if a storm blows up or something, hopefully you get washed up on land. How are sea monsters described in the historical accounts? And we touched a little bit on this with the Ketos. Um, what did they look like and were there commonalities between accounts? And where do we find these accounts in the history? Yeah, I mean, we have scattered throughout um, just various vague accounts of someone somewhere will get attacked by beasts from the sea. Um, it's not usually described in too much detail. And 
these sort of historical accounts usually use the word kite or belua in the Latin terms, um, and they're just very generic words that don't give much description. But we read, for instance, in Herodotus that there was a storm at sea and a lot of Persian ships got destroyed in that. And so a lot of them got devoured by, I think he just calls it theron, just the Greek word for beasts. In general, so we don't really get much description from them. There's another one, another story recorded by Plutarch that mentions a man that was washing um, a pig down by the harbor in Athens, and he gets attacked by a sea monster, Akitas, and just torn apart there. So, I mean, the historical accounts, interestingly, we can't make much differentiation between the same exact words used to describe them in the more mythological accounts there. I wonder how many of these accounts are true accounts of people getting eaten by sharks or something. And it also makes me think about those large scale battles. We um, had an episode last season when we talked to Barry Strauss about the Battle of Actium, which was a sea battle. Uh, A lot of people died in it. A lot of ships sank. A lot of people fell off the ships and and died in the sea. And that must have been just a, a shark smorgasbord, like some of these ancient sea battles. Because, you know, sharks are attracted by blood. So I wonder how much of this involves, you know, eyewitness accounts of large-scale shark attacks that occur during large-scale marine battles with a lot of death. That's that's one possible influence. I mean, in the ancient world, for sure, you don't really, I mean, you can imagine that we might have in other cultures narratives where you're just sailing along a boat and a sea, a gigantic sea monster comes along and like, jumps overboard and snatches you off the ship and devours you. We have a couple of narratives like that, but for the most part, it's not a a main common thing. It seems in general, as long as you stay on the boat, you're fairly safe, which would be the case with most shark attacks. You know, sharks aren't going to jump up onto the boat and snatch someone off as long as it's not a too small boat, hopefully. Um, But yeah, that's one definite influence too. I mean, to be fair, they were chumming the water. They were, like, giving the shark signals to come and eat their boat. But any, I'm Team Shark. I, that's what I'm thinking. Like, in, in the Battle of Actium, they were chumming the water, Jen. And and that just makes me wonder, were, were they, in fact, quote-unquote, Kite, sighted at the Battle of Actium, large-scale devouring people who fell off their boats? That's an aspect of the battle that hasn't been discussed. I need to call up Barry Strauss and ask him now. Absolutely. The other question that I had that I'm just super interested in is, is there a difference between how Atlantic and Mediterranean sea monsters were depicted? Not in terms of physical characteristics or anything. You will see very often the Atlantic ones, and there's also, it's a big thing with the Indian Ocean as well. They're still called Kite, and they're still, presumably still have the same features, but they're just amped up versions of them. So they're described as being much larger and much more fierce. It's a kind of satirical text, Lucian's true history. It begins with them sailing out westward from the Pillars of uh, Hercules, so going out into the Atlantic Ocean, and eventually, after going to the moon and back, as you do, they get swallowed up by a gigantic Ketus there, and it's described, it's the largest Ketus in, that I've ever seen. It's described as being like what is it, 1,500 stades, which modern equivalent is something like 27 miles long. And that's obviously a satirical text, but he's working on the other assumptions that he's parodying these other ideas that Kite and the Atlantic are supposed to be exceptionally large. There's another one from Diodorus Siculus who says that when uh, Hercules created the Pillars of Hercules, he created them just narrow enough so that they would keep the largest of the Kite out of the Mediterranean Ocean. 
and I don't recall offhand how wide the Strait of Gibraltar is, but it's a few miles, so you can imagine how uh, supposedly big the ones out there are supposed to be then. So I guess my question here is like, are we talking about, and I don't know what lives in the Mediterranean, forgive my ignorance, are we talking about something like like a blue whale versus like smaller things that they had met maybe, you know, I know they're in the Atlantic Ocean. Are we saying like maybe they saw something like that and that might be an explanation? You said that there are, there are no accurate depictions of whales in ancient Greek and Roman artwork. That is blowing my mind right now. People did fish. They lived lives on the sea. They took boats out. But I'm also thinking about how, you know, as you said, seafaring was not the way we think of it today as like, you know, kind of international seafaring where people would sail from one continent to another on a ship, you would basically hug the shore. So it does kind of make sense that there wouldn't be a lot of encounters with a blue whale, but maybe it would happen so rarely and so occasionally that there would be fantastical stories about it, but not as much accurate descriptions of it. Yeah, I mean, whales, if you look up the dictionary definition of ketus, whale is often listed as another possible translation for it. But the, what I'm doing in my thesis is basically saying, I mean, the idea of whales is not discernibly different in the ancient world. You'll notice that we don't have any ancient depictions of whales at all. It's always just the Ketus as this monstrous creature. But nevertheless, whales still influence a lot of ideas because you can imagine these things do wash up on shore a lot of times. There's a fascinating article that traces a lot of the Ketus stuff. And one of the centerpieces of that article is actually a whale scapula bone. I guess whales have shoulders, apparently, but it's something that was found in an Athenian well. And so one of the interpretations of this you know, scapula bone is basically based on cut marks that are on it, that this might have been used as a cutting board, essentially. So this gets us to a lot of the ancient experience of whales because they would just wash up on shore. We do have one narrative of Akitas, that's presumably a whale, stranding itself on a beach, and basically all of the locals come out and hack it to death and start carting off the meat. So these things just wash up, and you take away what you can from them, the meat, the bones, you can use as cutting boards, apparently, and whatever else. Just, yeah, whatever you can use from the corpse. And so you have this somewhat general awareness. You don't know what these creatures are, or how big they can be out in further reaches of the world, but that there are just giant beasts, giant monsters that wash up and die on your shores. Whales, particularly big whales, they devour by swallowing whole. And you see it in other places as well. You've got Jonah who got swallowed by a whale. You've got like other myths of people being swallowed by whales across cultures. And I wonder if that's something linked back to sea monsters and the stuff that they didn't understand about what happens to people at sea. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a pervasive thing to be swallowed by you know, a whale or some sort of sea monster in the ancient world. It's actually listed as a motif in the folklore index of Sis Thompson. That at least shows how pervasive it is, not just in the ancient world, but seemingly all cultures. I mean, you have these experiences with these giant beasts. You just look at whales, and if you didn't know anything about their biology or anything from what we are accustomed to knowing, you just kind of have to assume that hey, that giant beast must eat a lot. The fact that they most whales survive on plankton would be you would never guess that, that such a, a large animal would subsist on tiny microorganisms like that. So the devouring trait is definitely seems to be something that's baked into cultural assumptions about them. The scale and the size of them is just, it's beyond what you see with a dolphin, which they would have been familiar with. 
Yeah, and that, that's a great point um, because we do have representations, lots of representations of dolphins in the uh, ancient art. So, yeah, it's, it's something interesting that you go for uh, basically more realistic depictions of dolphins, yet you monstrousize um, other things like that. Are there uh, accurate depictions of sharks? No. Interestingly enough, there's not a depiction of a shark in the ancient world either. And the Greek, the Greek and Latin words for shark are sometimes said to be kion and conus in Latin. So we have that overlap again, where it seems that they would just call essentially sharks sea dogs, but that also overlaps with the canine features of sea monsters as well. So you'll get a lot of references like Book 12 of the Odyssey. It's mentioned that Scylla snatches up, I forget, I forget the other two, but at one point it's mentioned uh, that she snatches up uh, sea dogs, essentially. And sometimes you'll see that translated as just sharks, but it's really ambiguous in terms of the actual text. That is fascinating. I wonder if, if like, there's something about a shark's head that looked canine to the ancient eye. Yeah, I mean, it, it could well be. I mean, you always have to think, I mean, what is the definition of a dog, really? I mean, we might say it's it's something that's got fur and four leg, uh, four different legs. But if you want to define a dog as something that, I don't know, maybe has shark teeth, then, hey, reasonably, you could maybe say a shark is a variant on a dog. I mean, obviously, like the word the word in Latin is like translates to dog, but it also makes me think of wolves, you know, like calling a shark a sea wolf doesn't sound inaccurate to me, you know, like just not based on what it looks like, but based on ferocity and hunting abilities. Yeah, there's a little bit of that in there, too, with Scylla's tradition. Virgil in the Aeneid um, says that uh, Scylla in ancient art, you know, she's routinely depicted as having these three dogs coming out of her waist. And Virgil in the Aeneid uh, describes them with the Latin word lupus. I don't know the exact reason he does that. Um, But yeah, I mean, dogs and wolf um, have very close associations like that, of course. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. So, obviously, as we're discussing now, in addition to history, sea monsters populate folklore and mythology. What are some examples of famous sea monsters in the mythology of people in the Mediterranean world? We're just talking about um, Scylla of Scylla and Charybdis. What do these stories tell us about the cultures that they come from, particularly stories of creatures like Quito or Scylla or even the much later Norse Kraken? Yeah, I mean, the Kraken is an interesting character. To, to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever done a study on the Kraken. Sometimes it's it's related back to Norse mythology, but it seems in some ways that the modern Kraken gets going about 1700s, 1800s or so. 
So it might be one of those things that's very tangentially related to Norse mythology, but really comes alive when you start getting um, more octopus-like sea monsters in Jules Verne and other things in the more modern world. But yeah, as for um, the Greek and Roman ones, besides Tachetus, the only really major sea monsters, um, I haven't mentioned this yet, but you know, you don't really have like octopus-like sea monsters in the ancient world at all. That's a thing that at best starts in the medieval world. They're always these more beast-like creatures. And so we do have Scylla and Charybdis are the other two major ones besides the Ketus. And those are monsters that really start in the Odyssey. And, you know, they have other associations in ancient texts and ancient art. But they are monsters that, just as today we think of Scylla and Charybdis, we think of the Odyssey. They're thoroughly tied back to that text in the ancient world as well. So, yeah, Scylla, I mean, a lot of people will be familiar with her in the Odyssey is really one of the most frightening creatures I think has ever been written. It's very Lovecraft-like, the description, the horrific description uh, that's given of her there, just multi-limbed creature that very bizarrely snatches people up onto her cliffside and devours them there. So that's a very unusual thing for ancient experiences of the sea. You know, as I was saying at the beginning, you're very worried, very paranoid about what's below you and the danger that could be lurking below. Perhaps the last thing you'd expect is to be snatched up from above and then you're just being devoured by another sort of sea monster that is paradoxically in the Odyssey just located on a cliff for whatever reason. And Scylla in the Odyssey is, is another great mystery that the text, of course, never specifies how or why this horrid monster just came to be uh, residing in a, a cave on a cliff like that, just devouring up people. I never thought about this because I always thought of, of Scylla as a sea monster, but she is, in fact, not even in the sea. And and I guess, like, I always thought of her as just, like, some kind of a giant squid or something like she has like tentacles because she's she has these many arms with which she picks people up and eats them and and you're right like she's always um kind of coming down from above so i in my head would imagine her sort of rearing up from the sea 20 feet high snatching people up you're imagining ursula from the little mermaid kind of actually you know that's (laughs) kind of what i'm picturing but i i didn't i guess i didn't make the connection or just didn't remember that she's actually in a cliff so does she count as a sea monster? Yes, I think in at least in the Odyssey, uh, depending on how you want to define a sea monster, some people will say she's not yet a sea monster. But I've included her in the thesis because of the later tradition as well um, that you'll see in ancient art. The, the way she's depicted is nothing like what the Odyssey describes. Um, she's given, you know, the dog, the three dogs that are coming out of her waist and her tail is almost identical. Well, in some cases, perfectly identical with that of Akitas as well. So you get it's not quite a mermaid um, in the same sense because it has the dogs, uh, but this creature that apparently does swim about in the sea as well. So it's another interesting thing, uh, the enigma of the Odyssey Scylla, that she's so radically different from the later tradition we see of her in the ancient world. The reasons for that are just open to speculation, depending on where you want to say the tradition of the Odyssey was taking that. So you mean like on on vases and and other artwork, she's depicted just completely differently as sort of a, a strange mermaid with dogs coming out of her waist? Um, exactly. Um, 
Yeah, and it's it's just not really known why. There's I've seen all sorts of speculation that there may have been an alternate oral tradition of her as some creature like that that lived about in the sea, um, hung about with the Nyrids, but there's nothing conclusive to say about why that happens. The earliest depictions of her in art are from the 6th century BC onward. So it's something that comes about fairly early in the ancient world and just persists all the way through. Perhaps might be the case that, you know, if you go back and read the description of the Odyssey in Book 12 and then think about the task of trying to depict that monster visually, well, that's just, uh, that would be kind of difficult. So perhaps they went with a different sort of form, the mermaid form, just with dogs grafted on it that they would have gotten from more near Eastern art as well. Yeah, and gives us a look at that cultural exchange that was happening across this area. So Charybdis is super interesting because it is, according to what I remember, and this is from many years ago that I read the Odyssey, um, a whirlpool? A sentient whirlpool? <laughs> Maybe? <laughs> yep. I gave a presentation about her over the summer, and yeah, that's exactly the conception of Charybdis, um, because the Odyssey text, if you read it line by line, you, you notice a lot of creepy details that you might not in the English translation. There's a point um, when they're going through the strait. Charybdis is a whirlpool, but also has this mechanism of sucking down and spitting out water. So at one point in the Odyssey narrative, you know, she does the thing where she sucks down water, and it's mentioned in the text that the ground below was revealed. And that's a very eerie detail because, you know, you might expect if the water's being sucked down, all oh, the monster underneath is being revealed. But it seems there's nothing inside the whirlpool at all. Um, and same thing, we have zero depictions of Charybdis in ancient art. There are a couple that some people try to argue, but they're really just depictions of waves. So this creature is is another interesting thing that we don't know so much about the ancient world because it's been lost to time, but there are some things even the ancients kind of didn't know, or they weren't interested in conceptualizing Charybdis as an actual monster with a body. Um, rather, it seems to be just the monster is the whirlpool itself, which is just all sorts of creepy. I have a question. You called Charybdis a she, and we know Scylla is a she. Were these ancient sea monsters, particularly like the big ones, gendered? And if so, were they gendered mostly female? Yeah, this is a good question. So for Charybdis, I had I had to think about this a lot of you know, which pronouns am I going to use for this monster in the thesis? Um, and when you look at the Odyssey text, um, there is zero indication that it's a female monster in that work. I mean, the Greek word Charybdis is uh, feminine in gender, but grammatical gender doesn't necessarily equate to actual female gender, but we do have in the later ancient world, you find Charybdis being deployed as an insult for women, basically. And the same thing with Scylla as well. So that's how you know through these very misogynistic tropes of equating women to female monsters that the ancients seem to have generally considered these monsters as feminine. And it's a similar thing with Scylla that you read the Odyssey text, at least in that text, there's not a whole lot female about her. And so it's only when we get that later artistic tradition where she's got the female upper torso um, that it seems that you can identifiably say that she's female. Yeah, I think it just reminds me a lot of what we've looked at in the last season about gender and about how men viewed the wild world and women's place in it and how scary 
it is to have a woman who is sort of outside of that. So it doesn't surprise me that these monsters were gendered female. And I mean, depending on, I mean, another way, you can't get this out of the explicit text of the Odyssey, but depending on how you want to interpret some of the overall themes of the Odyssey, um, a lot of times it'll be said that a lot of the monsters in the Odyssey are not just monsters, but uh, people like Calypso and Circe that are trying to keep Odysseus away from his home um, along with, you know, uh, the sirens and Scylla and Charybdis are all uh, female, except for, I mean, maybe the Lystragonians and the Cyclops, but you have a lot of female threats in the Odyssey that seem designed by the text to keep this man away from, you know, getting back to home. It's almost like a parable against women with agency. Women with agency who are who are outside of home, hearth, and family are obstacles to men getting back to home, hearth, and family. It almost sends a message to the women in the audience. And that would make the Odyssey a tool of for building and creating the patriarchy and rigid gender roles. This is just all building into my master theory of gender. One more brick in that wall. <laughs> and it, it is it's one of those things where, as you said that I was thinking, I was like, I think the only monster that's a boy is the Cyclops. And also the only one Odysseus has to really pay any retribution for wounding or injuring in any way, shape, or form is Polyphemus, the Cyclops. Misogyny! Hark! We have discovered <laughs> it again! <laughs> well, you notice another um, another parallel with the Odyssey. Is, that's a great point that Odysseus, he's famed for being the man of many wiles, the man that uses his tricks, his cunning, his intelligence to get out of traps like that. Um, and he's able to do that with his encounter with the Cyclops. But when you talk about things like Scylla, there's at one point where Circe is telling him about the upcoming danger with Scylla. And he, at one point, it's, it's actually somewhat of a comical reading. He says, is there no sort of defense, no way to fight her? And Circe basically tells him, no, you stupid idiot. Uh, no one can fight Scylla. She is an immortal evil. So the threat represented by Scylla and Charybdis is something that Odysseus, with his famous traits of being polymechanos, being a very clever man and all of that, it's not going to get you anywhere because you can't fight something like Scylla and you certainly can't really trick your way out of it. Women are non-rational threats. They're like forces of nature. They're like the sea or like a giant whirlpool or some kind of natural phenomenon that you cannot think your way out of. Once again, hark, misogyny. <laughs> and she tells him something like all he can do is like, hope she doesn't take too many men and like just go as fast as he can and not get too close to Charybdis. It's one of those great moments. And I think the interesting thing too in that relationship Odysseus has with like Circe and even Calypso is like the only reason he doesn't get caught by Circe's wiles is because of Hermes, right? Doesn't Hermes give him some plant or something so he's not susceptible to Circe's pig turning tonic? And I feel like he doesn't quite have that luck with Calypso, but he's not able to wile his way around women. Like he's great with other men, but women are his downfall, which maybe is a message to Penelope. <laughs> <laughs> you get that a lot um, with Scylla as well, because people will point out Marion Hopman is the person that has written the go-to book on Scylla, and she really defines um, Scylla as being this amalgamation of woman, dog, and sea monster, or the sea, really, in her idea. So you have the, all these traits coming together, but also it's a very strong misogynistic parallel because in the ancient world, you know, you have comparisons of women to dogs is a very common trope. And so with Scylla, that's combined as well into both the sort of like monstrous comparisons to women as well as the canine misogyny stuff. 
Pliny the Elder writes about sea monsters, mermen who climb ships and then sink them, myriads who washed up on shores covered in scales and singing a morning song before they died. What in the world was he actually talking about, and what do modern scholars make of his fantastic encounters and tales? I love this question because I've actually already written and published an article on Pliny's marine folklore. Um, So if people want to go check that out, just Google my name and Pliny Marine. It's in an open access journal called Green Letters. Um, So it's, it's available publicly, even if you don't have a university access. But yeah, I mean, it's basically collating a lot of Pliny's material on Nyrid's Tritons and the sea monsters as well. And yeah, as with a lot of Pliny, uh, we don't really know what he was talking about. What I've put in that article is that a lot of Pliny's references to Tritons and Nyrids especially are actually very exceptional. He says at one point that not, you know the bodies of Nyrids wash up on the shores of Gaul, and they're described as having scales. And this is another thing that, to the best of my knowledge, there is no other ancient text or ancient source that describes the Nyrids in art either as having scales. So his version of it is very perplexing. When you say Nyrids, I kind of just picture, I kind of just picture a mermaid. Is that is that not what we're talking about? Yeah, it could be. I mean, this is this is another thing I've had to investigate for the Nyrids chapter in the thesis that. Interestingly, mermaids, even though we have the form of Scylla that is basically almost a mermaid, a mermaid plus the dogs, you don't actually see much descriptions of mermaids in ancient text or ancient art. And I'm talking about in terms of just the classical definition of a mermaid, purely half woman, half fish type thing. There is no word in Greek or Latin for mermaid either. The Nyrids, sometimes people will call them mermaids, but if you want to get technical about it, I mean, they're fully um, anthropomorphic. So in ancient art, they're always depicted as fully human bodies, legs and everything. Um, So it's not quite the same, but it's an interesting point too, that we know from uh, ancient Near Eastern art, certain deities like Derekito were depicted as essentially mermaids. Art of goddess too, right? This is a Syrian mermaid goddess. Ah, yeah, that's, that's another big one. So we'll have We'll have things like that of Lucian in a second century AD text gives a physical description of something that he's seeing of Artagatis and basically just describes it as essentially a mermaid. We know they're aware of the idea of mermaids and they do have a little bit of, of interaction with them from that Near Eastern art, but it doesn't ever curiously become a major thing in ancient art or ancient mythology. The Nyrids remain like purely anthropomorphic, so that's why it's somewhat weird for Pliny to suddenly depict them with scales and all of that. So a, a Nereid is, is like a person, like a human being, but in the sea. Yeah. It's Achilles' mom was a Nereid, right? Uh, I thought she, I guess I thought she was a nymph. Is that the same thing? Oh, this is this is this is a good question, actually. Did um, I just open up a can of worms? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I have to sort of like him and haw at this point on the thesis because the central book on Greek nymphs is a book by Jennifer Larson. And, you know, if you're writing a book on a subject like that, you might start out with, well, what is a nymph in the first place? And it turns out it's not one of those things that can be nice and neatly defined. She basically starts it off with listing a a bunch of characteristics, essentially saying that, hey, I can't give a nice, tight definition of them. All I can say is basically they are somewhat associated with all of these attributes. And so it'll be 
a thing routinely for a lot of these attributes to overlap with ideas of things like nirids as well. And in general, I mean, what is the difference between like a minor female goddess and a nymph? Because they're both just associated a lot of the same traits. Um, so to answer that question, they are sometimes in Roman texts directly called nymphs. But as far as whether they started out as nymphs, it's anyone's guess, really. Yeah, I could see how this would be very confusing. Like, I guess I think of a nymph as like kind of a, a nature spirit being. I don't know if this is even a, an ancient concept of nymphs, actually, though, now that I think about it. I always think of them as tied to a certain place, like a lake or a grove of trees. One of the uh, the traits that Jennifer Larson gives is that they're tied to a water source, a spring or a river sometimes. And so, I mean, does the sea count as a water source in, the, in that way? Um, who knows, really, depends on just how, and a lot of times they're depicted, nymphs are associated with caves as well. We do read in the Iliad that the Nirids live in an underwater cave as well. So that's another possible alignment with them too. What are some other things that Pliny the Elder talks about in terms of his marine lexicon? And are there any ties to animals that we know of today? Ah, the last question is very interesting for sure. I have a book around here somewhere, actually, that was in the 1930s. Someone got it in their mind to look at all of the references in book nine. Book nine of Pliny's Natural History is basically his sea book where he says all these crazy things about various sea animals. But someone in the 1930s got in their head that they're going to pull apart all of these Latin words for various different sea animals and attempt to figure out what are these actually. It is a very admirable attempt. I'll, I'll give it that. But a lot of it just has to be guesswork because the descriptions he gives us, well, it'd be generous to say that they're a sentence long, but a lot of times not even that. So just this project of matching up ancient Latin words for different animals with the modern equivalents that we know them in biology from is always fraught with that sort of danger like that. And Pliny, at one point, it's actually in book 32, that he decides for whatever reason that in his mind, he has determined that I think it's 147. There are only 147 sea creatures in the world, according to him. And then he proceeds to name them all. And so we have this huge long list of just Latin terms that were apparently associated with sea monsters that half the time we can't even translate some of these because who knows uh, how it matches up with real animals because it's just a list. So yeah, just plenty being fairly uncertain as always. But very specific, 147, and that is it. <laughs> Do you think there's any, you know, at this point in time where we're talking about like these mermaids washing up on Gaul and, you know, we've kind of moved into Britain. Do you think there's any overlap with sort of Celtic and maybe even particularly British mythology about things like Selkies or Kelpies? Like, is that coming in? Is that why we're seeing more of these strange mermaids? That's a good thought. I don't know because it plenty plenty's writing in the first century AD, so I don't know that there there might not be much influence of the British stuff on the Roman imagination yet, but there definitely is something in the later imagination for sure. The article I'm writing on Beowulf, there are things called in the text it's called a nicor, the nicros in the plural. It's another just unknown term. And I've theorized that a lot of times you can see them as associated with a lot of the ways that the Kitas appear. 
um, in Greco-Roman mythology, but there's also that uncertainty of what was going on in early medieval England. Are they deriving from some unknown folklore that we don't know about that yet? And definitely when you start getting into later medieval stuff, Celtic folklore, I mean, it's, it's another thing that I've wanted to explore so much. The medieval world, it's still something I'm, I'm so unfamiliar with as a classicist, but I'm always hoping to get into more of that and see how that affects a lot of this and comes in, in meshes with the Greco-Roman stuff as well. One thing that we're definitely interested in as well here is the link between ancient depictions of sea monsters and other monsters and fossils. That's a very good question. I don't, I don't know much about the specific fossils that would be located in certain areas, but I mean, the go-to book on it for anyone that's interested is Adrian Mayers, the first fossil hunters. She might have an answer for that. But yeah, yeah, this is another thing of interesting to think about in the ancient world that just as, you know, whales show up on seashores and you just sort of pick apart and you get a scapula or whatever you can use from them. Yeah, same thing with fossils, basically. I mean, you find something uh, like a tooth or something, and especially if it's a whale bone or something, you associate it perhaps with a giant monster like that. You know, we don't really get that a lot in the modern world, unfortunately. You don't, you don't walk down the street and ever find a fossil or anything, unfortunately. So in a way, that creates another element of mystery and magic to the world um, that basically just contributes to this idea of there were monsters at one point uh, in the world. And presumably, depending on, I guess, who you ask in the ancient world, maybe such things still continue to exist. Yeah, I think I, I'm not sure if I got this idea from Adrian Meyer. I might have mammoth skulls might have contributed to the ancient imagination like the idea of the cyclops because the way that that a mammoth skull looks the hole where the trunk would come out looks like this big giant eye socket in the center of the skull people finding mammoth bones and mammoth skulls might have given rise to myths of the cyclops yeah she i think in in her book somewhere it might be a separate article has actually written one depiction of akitas fighting in the hesione myth where you see heracles fighting it, the depiction of it is very unusual and very rare. It's depicted as what looks to be just like a white skull. So instead of just these sort of like fishy characteristics that you see maybe in attic black figure vases or something like that, where we at least have some color to the creature and it's it's more visible, this one for whatever reason just seems to be a, a white skull. And she, I think, and a couple of other people have speculated that yeah, maybe that was just based on a fossil that someone found an elephant skull or I can't remember what the I think she traced it to some breed of ancient giraffe or something like that. I, I suppose you could see an elongated uh, face from a giraffe skull as well. You can find mosasaur teeth and they are big as well as like megalodon teeth. I know Liv had one. I know off the coast of places like like the Jurassic Coast in England and like all different places are hot spots for fossils. So it, it doesn't surprise me that you would see these teeth and be like, what had this? And can I not meet it, please? Do you uh, want to ask the Pictish Beast question, Jen? First off, before we go there, do you know what the Pictish Beast is? No. Do you want to Google it? Do you want to take a Google and, and, and see what it looks like? Sure. It is taking a while. It might be slowing down the internet, but there we go. Oh, yes. The drawing. There's nothing really corresponding in, um, in mythology to uh, explain what this animal is. So um, what is your opinion, your professional opinion on the Pictish beast? <laughs> it is very fascinating. Uh, I see here it's sometimes also called the Pictish dragon as well, which is an interesting thing. I might have to 
pass this on to Daniel and get his opinion as well. Because, I mean, depending upon the exact dating of these, uh, a dragon may or may not have four legs yet. But, yeah, this is, it's very fascinating. I don't know immediately what to think of it. Um, but you see, again, that very elongated snout there as well. So you see that with dragons, too, of course, the elongated snout that maybe, again, thinking of that um, generic canine associations what do you associate with a beast do they do all sorts of beasts sea monsters dragons and otherwise maybe just have that generic feature that's very fascinating so do you think it's a sea monster (laughs) i wouldn't be able to say definitively without any sea context but judging by the the ones that i'm pulling up you're not gonna be able to get any uh sea depictions but Yeah, I mean, it's well possible um, because looking at one of the redrawings of it, it doesn't look like to me like it has back legs, depending on what that curl at the end is. So, you know, it's well possible that that's an etching of a a fishtail that curls up like that. That was another common feature. They're always depicted as having tails that weirdly curl up. Jen and I have... We actually have an episode in our back catalog where we argue extensively about what the Pictish beast is. It's pretty great. (laughs) I settled on sea monster. (laughs) Maybe the Loch Ness monster. Or like a Kelpie. I went from hippocamp to the Loch Ness monster. (laughs) Yeah, you were like kind of going for like the cryptozoological slash mythological angle. And I went for a historical angle. My theory is that this is a, a mythologized depiction of a swimming elephant dating specifically from the time that Claudius brought an elephant up to Britain to celebrate his conquest of Britain, which was actually not a conquest. Still think I'm right. <laughs> well, if you look at the way that the feet, if, if you interpret that back area as feet and not a tail, the front feet and the back feet are pointing backwards, indicating swimming, perhaps, but swimming of a four-legged creature. Or it's like a hippocampus. <laughs> Or a sea monster. Because around this time, St. Columba was uh, having a whole thing about uh, the Loch Ness Monster in that area. (laughs) This is our argument. You're welcome to enter into it if you'd like. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very fascinating. Like I said, I've never seen anything uh, on that. But I'll definitely look into that further. And I will see Daniel in a couple of days for a meeting. So I'll put that to him as well. To just go back to keto for a minute. So keto is a really interesting monster. Um, it, he, they, she, keto? Well, are you talking about keto, the goddess, or ketus, the, the, the monster? The monster? I didn't know there was keto, the goddess. Well, in the, uh, the romanization, K-E-T-O-S is, is, yeah, just the monster itself. The beast that we've been talking about that, Interestingly, I mean, you assume if they're like other animals that there are male and female versions of them, but we never hear anything of that at all in ancient texts. And then Keto, K-E-T-O, is she's sometimes said to be a goddess of sea monsters, but this this isn't actually an ancient text. But Hesiod basically mentions her at one point in his Theogony, and basically it's theorized by I think most Hesiod scholars that this is just a, a name that he made up for a genealogy. And he does this at other points, it seems, that if you want to have this project of stitching together all the gods' genealogies, sometimes you kind of just have to uh, make up a name in a sense. And so the word Keto for the female goddess is usually taken to be derived from Ketus like that. And so, I mean, there is a 
goddess called Keto, but there's very little about her in the ancient world after Hesiod. Pliny, of course, because Pliny mentions weird things, um, he claims at one point that around where the Andromeda myth took place, there's a cult that worshipped her and sacrificed to her, but most people don't give that much credence because why would you trust Pliny for one thing? But also, I mean, there's just no other ancient evidence of worship for a goddess named Keto. So I, w- I wanted to go back to um, where the Andromeda myth takes place and talk about what that myth might tell us about sort of cultural exchange and actually just geographically that area of the Mediterranean, Northern Africa. Say that with a question mark because I think I've got my geography right. <laughs> it's actually a slightly confusing thing, too, because the Andromeda myth in the ancient world is said to happen at two different locations. Uh, so in the earliest, what seems to be the earliest tradition, um, it is said to occur in Ethiopia, which Ethiopia, if you look at it on the map in terms of the real world, the country of Ethiopia, you can pinpoint it really easily. But you have to think in terms of ancient conceptions that it's not where we think it is. I mean, we read all of these ancient geography, especially the further out you get from the Mediterranean, is very distorted. So you have this place where it occurs that, yes, is nominally Ethiopia, but it's sort of like a mythical version of Ethiopia. Um, It's somewhere vaguely to the south. We read in Homer in the Odyssey that, and I believe in the Iliad too, actually, that Ethiopia is where the gods go to dine with the the blameless Ethiopians that are these quasi-divine people, apparently. And so, yeah, the Andromeda myth is, interestingly, just set in Ethiopia in this sort of never-never land in the ancient world like that. And then from the 4th century BC onward, we get in a text called Pseudo-Skylax, he associates it as happening in the city of Joppa in Judea. And why does it basically switch places like that. It becomes associated with a place actually inside the Mediterranean. Maybe some sort of local tradition is responsible for that, where people start saying, you know, no, it took place here. And the other very interesting fact about that switch is that Joppa is also the town in which Jonah departed from in the Old Testament and where he got swallowed up by a sea monster. So uh, that's an interesting parallel. People speculate whether those are related then. And what year was this that the switch happened from Ethiopia? Well, the earliest we have it is 4th century BC, which is another interesting thing because people date the book of Jonah to maybe the 5th or 4th century BC. So it's another thing that some people want to say they're related, but it's it's just a whole other uncertainty. What does this story tell us about that region and the interaction between the people of the Mediterranean? Because you know, it is in theory at one point in time in Ethiopian story and other points in time, it takes place in Judea. Does it tell us anything about the geography? Was that geography particularly dangerous for sailing? Or does it tell us about the two different cultures? Because the story of Andromeda is her mother, Cassiopeia, was like, I have a very beautiful daughter. She is the most beautiful daughter. She is more beautiful than I think all the Nereids. And as a result, I think it's Poseidon. He sends Keto to come and eat Andromeda. And by Keto, you mean the goddess, not the sea monster. I mean, maybe both. <laughs> it, it is the sea monster. I'm going to refer to Ketus the sea monster. So the sea monster gets dispatched by Perseus on his way back from slaying Medusa. Perseus kills the Ketus by showing it Medusa's head. And then it like turns to stone and then 
crashes into the sea. So, I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, laying out the myth like that, I mean, you notice people that are fans of mythology will immediately notice that theme there of when someone compares themselves or attempts to sort of compare themselves to the God or say they're better in certain respects, you know, bad things always happen to them. Think of the myth of Arachne, rather, comparing yourself to a God in, in terms of beauty or any other attribute always leads to bad things. So yeah, you have that interesting connection there with the Nairids. Because of that, essentially the Ketus is dispatched to Ethiopia for that reason. And it's interestingly, a lot of times in the narratives, depending on which version of the myth you're going with, it's not just the Ketus, but also Poseidon sends a flood to basically ravish the plain um, as well. So this is really a myth of, you know, the sea god's wrath. He sends both sea and sea monster there as well. And I mean, in terms of the sort of cultural ex- exchange between the two, I don't know quite too much that it'll, it reflects too much on the ancient culture of Ethiopia. There was a civilization there, but the ancients seem to have had a very dim understanding. And when I say ancients there, I mean, you know, Greco-Roman ancient all sorts of things about Ethiopia and going way into late antiquity. I did my MA thesis on basically portrayals of Ethiopian Ethiopians in late antiquity, and it just still doesn't move any closer to essentially realism. We know there was contact between the cultures, but it's interestingly still just never really makes its way into myth and literature. So that's another interesting thing that you can have two cultures connecting like that. There was trade uh, between the two, especially in late antiquity when you get the major trading center at Constantinople and all. But oddly enough, it doesn't necessarily impact upon myths uh, sometimes because the myth of Andromeda was presumably still in the same form that it was when back when there wasn't so many trading connections like that, that uh, back in the you know Homeric days, essentially, or just after, where it's kind of still this unknown land like that. Do we know if this area was somewhere that was prone to flooding, to big waves coming in and washing things? Like, is that mythology in any way looking back at the natural landscape and what might have happened? Yeah, there are some references. I think it is in Pliny, I believe, um, that recalls that, and this is when it's moved to Joppa, though, Um, in his version that, you know, you can still see the places where Andromeda, you know, the indents in the rock where she was chained up, where they, you know, hammered in the chains as well. So it's associated with sometimes like physical locations like that. There is also another version that basically theorizing why the Red Sea is called the Red Sea. And you have, I think, actually a couple of different versions that the Red Sea Obviously, not to us, it's not literally red, but that it's called the Red Sea because the blood of the Ketus spilled out forth into the sea like that. So, yeah, I mean, you do have very geographical connections like that sometimes. So your new research you alluded to, I think, before we hit recording, you've got an article coming out that's going to talk about Poseidon's sort of underwater kingdom palace. And obviously, I just need to know all the details about this. Yeah, I mean, to, to advertise the article a little bit more, um, it's going to be out hopefully in December in a volume called The Ancient Sea, Utopia and Catastrophe. 
I think that that's the full title, but it'll be out um, from Liverpool University Press, and it's this edited volume looking at the tensions of the sea between utopia and catastrophe. Basically, you have both uh, idealizations within the sea and obviously, as we've been talking about here, more catastrophic things. So yeah, my article looks at a very utopic function, which is something that we it's only very rarely, much to my disappointment, you have to basically hunt around in ancient texts to find scraps of mentions of some sort of underwater kingdom. It's very sadly not something that is fleshed out a whole hell of a lot in ancient texts. You never really see too much about it, but it begins the earliest in the Iliad. We see in book 13, the scene of Poseidon going across the sea. There is a three-line mention that he arrives at his golden palaces in the depths of the sea. And frustratingly, that's all we're ever told about it. You know, we don't really get much at all about what this is in the Iliad, but later authors seem to have built upon this. And there's this great myth, which people will probably be familiar with. The best version of it is in Bacchylides. When I say best, I mean the most extent version, not in terms of quality, but It is this myth where when Theseus is sailing to Crete to be sacrificed to the Minotaur, you have, for whatever reason, Minos is on the boat as well with all the prisoners. And basically, Theseus and Minos get into an argument and they start talking about, you know, Minos is the son of Zeus and so I have a greater lineage than you. Theseus talks about how he's the son of Poseidon. Minos basically doubts that. And so to prove that you are the son of the sea god, Minos takes off one of his rings, throws it into the water, and tells Theseus, you know, if you're the son of Poseidon, go and retrieve it. And again, thinking about the sea in the ancient world, you have to remember how much of an impossible feat this is. You lose something overboard, it's gone forever. But Theseus, son of Poseidon, jumps in and basically swims down and makes it miraculously somehow all the way to the bottom to this underwater palace and he's greeted by Amphitrite and the Nyrids and basically just given all of this golden raiment and stuff. He's given in that narrative a robe and a crown as well and so pops up back at the boat with Minos and all that with all of this shining godlike regalia basically proving that he is the son of Poseidon having gone to the depths of the sea. The impossible task which no ancient person could have done going to the actual bottom of the sea like that. So that's the main myth in which we see this. And just throughout other texts, later Roman texts, you see vague hints that this is a world that, interestingly, I have found no reference to sea monsters basically inhabiting this underwater palace like this. It's always the Nyrids or Enoleukothea, all these very anthropomorphic figures. So you see as much as Ah, Enoleukothea is basically, oh, this is, this is another great point. She is possibly, in later Roman text, also said to be a Nyrid at some point, but it is just another sea goddess in Book 5 of the Odyssey. She is the one that gives Odysseus his, uh, her shawl, or I, I don't remember what the Greek word was for it, but in, basically protects him, performs that interesting function of a marine goddess saving sailors, which is another thing that's often attributed to the Nyrids as well. Um, so in the underwater kingdom, she's sometimes said to be there. You have all these marine goddesses and gods um, that are just interestingly hanging about in this underwater palace that 
is never really used for much, unfortunately, in ancient literature. Um, but it's there. Interesting that there are rarely depicted sea monsters in the palace or in the kingdom, in Poseidon's kingdom. Also interesting that Amphitrite is like not trying to curse or hex um, uh, Theseus as he as he goes down and is like, hey, she's like, oh, another one of my husband's children by a mortal woman. Okay, I'll just give you the usual gift package. <laughs> she's not like Hera, Jen. <laughs> and maybe that's because she doesn't see them as much because she doesn't live in the sky. But they also go in the water. It's a mystery. <laughs> This has been so amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And where can people find you um, online? Yeah, so I suppose the main thing is on Twitter. I'm known as at SeaMonsterGuy, appropriately enough. I probably don't tweet too much, but yeah, you can find me, contact me on there. Um, Yeah, that is the main thing. And like I said, I have several forthcoming articles as well. So if you're interested in my research, um, I have all sorts of things on demons as well and hopefully one on ghosts if it's um accepted yeah hopefully we'll be publishing a lot more with my career as well fantastic i certainly hope so thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week with whatever we're talking about next As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.